Hello, everyone. Welcome back. And if you noticed, I, I remixed that one from last time just a tad. And I should probably think of a new intro altogether because Bo Wolf pointed out on Twitter that I stole his, which truthfully was not scripted. But hey, I, I guess that's some real life sicko force of habit stuff for all of you. And off the top here, I'm not usually Mr. Sentimental, but I just wanted to say I really, really appreciated the kind words after the first episode. The texts, tweets, emails, just thank you to everyone who reached out. And uh, let's run it back now. So today, let's start with the news from the past couple of days. And let's begin with the Phils winning 9-4 in Toronto on Wednesday night to snap their three-game losing streak. And they gave Rob Thompson a victory on his 60th birthday and I believe his first ever win in his home country. And look, man, that was just a good all-around performance. That's the type of win you need at times during a baseball season. You have a few bad days, but you stop the bleeding. You have a small cold spell, but you avoid turning it into a disaster. And then hopefully you're back to normal. And to the Phil's credit, they did it against one of the best pitchers in baseball in Kevin Gosman. They did it fighting back from an early deficit because Aaron Nola seems determined to inch closer and closer to Kyle Gibson's ERA. He's really almost there. You can do it, Aaron. I got a kick out of a tweet from Dan Wilson who said, Aaron Nola is the most frustrating Philadelphia athlete to ever attend LSU. And I mean, unless he forgets how to throw a baseball entirely, I don't think he will actually get there. But he's been absolutely maddening so far this year. And Wednesday night was another perfect example. Five innings, four earned runs, four hits. Not even like blah. Actually kind of bad. Nola gave up his 27th home run of the season, which ties a career high. And when that dude has made mistakes this year, and he has made a lot of them, these balls are generally getting hit to the moon. There are not a lot of cheapies among these Aaron Nola home run balls. And I'll go back to what I said last pot. It feels unlikely the topper would turn away from a pitcher of Aaron Nola's status. You know, just the name, Aaron Nola. But unless there is a huge resurgence coming in the next six weeks, I am absolutely dreading that dude getting the ball in a playoff game. On a positive note, the bats were good for one night after the bats were bad for three nights. And that loss on Tuesday was particularly frustrating because the lineup and then Sir Anthony at the end, they waste what was a pretty damn good Zach Wheeler start. Certainly deserved to win that game. The top four guys in the order went 0 for 16 with nine strikeouts in that game, which I'm going to say is not going to get it done. Hashtag analysis. But that's why Wednesday matters. You bounce back, you start feeling better about yourself, and as an added bonus, you do it against a good pitcher. In particular, I thought it was encouraging to see Bryce Harper go deep a couple of times. His first multi-home run game of the year, and we all know the power has not been there for him this season coming back from the Tommy John surgery. And they were both 
pretty cool swings. I thought the first one, which was off Gosman, that one was impressive because it wasn't really a bad pitch. Threw a splitter low and away. Maybe it got a little bit in the middle of the plate, but it was down. And Bryce just went the other way with it and crushed it 412 feet. Gosman knew it right off the bat. Bryce did too. And then the second one, which was essentially in baseball's version of garbage time and can't really say it affected the outcome, but hopefully it serves the purpose of getting Bryce on track. He didn't strike at all on that one. Harper said after the game, that's something he hasn't done in a while, but it, it made sense for that at bat. Now, whatever that means, I mean, I guess he was getting a lot of off-speed stuff in that at bat, but I gotta say, it's pretty impressive. That guy cannot step at all and still golf a baseball from a pitch thrown by a major league pitcher over the right field fence. So good win for the Phils, good bullpen game too. Kimbrell, Soto, Strom, all good. They all needed some work. Good stuff there. And then that takes us to the Sixers. So for them, over the past couple of days, Joel Embiid removed Philadelphia from his bio on the same day that James Harden called Daryl Morey a liar. And Ramona Shelburne, who is very plugged in with Joel, said he was probably trolling and happy to be a Sixer. And that has been your Sixers update for the day. Okay, so the rest of today's pod is going to be dedicated to the Eagles, who had two joint practices with the Cleveland Browns, who they'll also play in a preseason game later tonight. And reading the beat writers, it seemed like the second day went a lot better for the Eagles than the first day did. Hang the banner in the link. 2023, day two, joint practice champions. Let's get going on that. And, and again, I wasn't there, so of course I'm just going off the practice reports from the beat writers. But one of the big themes on day one was that Miles Garrett played the role of game wrecker, and he got the best of Jordan Mailata. It sounded like some real Strahan on Runyon type stuff, except there's no club in Mailata's hand. And like Runyon back in the day, that's okay. Mylata is still a very good player. We're obviously not worried about that. But Miles Garrett's probably the best edge rusher in a league full of really good ones. I actually saw some pictures of Garrett and Lane Johnson talking after the practice. I think Lane put those out on Instagram. And that's the matchup I would want to see. I guess Garrett mainly goes up against the left tackle and rushes from that side. And Lane is the right tackle, so I... I guess it didn't work out. And again, I don't really know. But Lane feels like the offensive line version of Garrett, where over the years he goes up against a ton of really, really good defensive ends, and they get nothing because Lane is the best. And when you go up against Lane Johnson, you get nothing. It also sounded like there were some other good matchups. Devontae Smith against Denzel Ward. Two really good players. You know, iron sharpening iron. That's, that's good stuff. And then it sounded like on the second day, the Eagles were better in a lot of ways. Now, Garrett not playing that day probably played a big part in that, but whatever. We'll let that slide for today. And the big play in everyone's practice notes involved a couple of the Eagles' safeties. Sidney Brown, one of this year's third-round picks, lit up one of the Browns' running backs after a Reed Blankenship interception. And he almost started a fight because there's a seemingly vague line of physicality you're not supposed to go over in one of these joint practices. 
Now that I I think that's hard in a game that is inherently as violent and fast as football. But I can tell you that just from reading everything about Sidney Brown, he does not seem like the type of player who is very good at towing that line. We're going to get to those guys a little bit more in depth in a minute. But the main thing I wanted to talk about with the Eagles today is just breaking down two things I'm excited about and two things I'm nervous about for this upcoming season. And the number one thing I'm excited about for this Eagles season is that Sean Desai is the Eagles defensive coordinator. But that's not all. I am excited that Sean Desai is the Eagles defensive coordinator, but I am just as excited that Jonathan Gannon is not the Eagles defensive coordinator. Where to begin with Johnny Gans? I, I think the one thing that Gannon did that had a close to 100% approval rating in Philadelphia that happened right before the NFC Championship game. Gannon is driving outside of the link. He rolls down his window to a, a couple of random Eagles fans who fortunately have their cell phones out. And uh, they take video of him and he says, we're going to effing gut these guys. I think that surfaced after the game. And, and look, even for myself, an avowed Gannon hater, that was cool. I mean, a, a little force, but good enough, I guess. It's Philadelphia. We love ourselves an F-bomb too. That's, you know, I'm not above that. But above all, I think it went over well because the Eagles did, in fact, gut the San Francisco 49ers. But this is the problem with Gannon. He knew the Eagles were going to win because he knows himself better than anyone. And specifically, he knew the Eagles were going to win because regardless of how well Brock Purdy had played to that point, and Purdy did enter the NFC Championship game undefeated, the opposing quarterback that day was still a rookie who was literally Mr. Irrelevant just a few months before. Jonathan Gannon knew that with the talent at his disposal, that type of efficient but still young and learning quarterback was not beating his defense that day. It was not going to happen. Now, if the quarterback has a pulse against a Johnny Gann's defense, now that's an entirely different story. He was the Eagles defensive coordinator for two seasons, and in that first year, there was a stretch at the beginning and then kind of into the middle of the season that featured some of the most frustrating defensive football I have ever laid eyes on. Whenever the Eagles faced a good quarterback, they got carved up in the exact same way. Dak Prescott went 21 of 26. Patrick Mahomes went 24 of 30 with five touchdowns. Tom Brady, 34 of 32. Derek Carr, 31 of 34. Justin Herbert, 32 of 38. And like, I get it. You're not going to stop these guys. But when every single one of them is completing 80% of their passes and they're not even breaking a sweat as they are playing professional football and the bullets are flying and you're playing against an actual defense, I think it's fair to question what the hell the defensive coordinator is doing. Lose another way, man. Challenge them. Do something. And then you get the last year, and it's a different story because the defense is ridiculously talented. I mean, that is my argument, and I am sticking to it. You get Hassan Reddick. You get BG back for a full year. You get James Bradbury. You get Chauncey Gardner-Johnson right before the season. And it's basically an all-star team. And yet, despite a lot of success, 
you still saw some monster performances when the opposing QB had a pulse. Jared Goff, who was good last year, 35 points. Aaron Rodgers and then Jordan Love in mop-up duty, 33 points. Dak on Christmas Eve, 40 points. Now, I don't think the narrative was as simple as year one. Statistically, the Eagles had the best DVOA in the league against the pass last year. The run defense was, at least statistically, more the issue. It, it sure felt like it. I mean, that Monday night game against Washington, I, they just converted every third and two imaginable. But the point is, Gannon should have fielded a good defense. He should have fielded a great defense, even. The defensive line had four guys with over 11 sacks, and there was also a loaded secondary on the back end. I mean, this was an all-star team. But then, of course, you face Patrick Mahomes again. And that is typically what happens in the Super Bowls. You face a quarterback with a pulse. What happens? The Chiefs score 38 points. Now, obviously, you might argue that 14 of those points weren't Gannon's fault. But, man, that second half, Kansas City did whatever they wanted. Even if we take away the short touchdown drive after the long punt return, the three drives that mattered, 10-play touchdown, 9-play touchdown, 12-play field goal to ice the freaking game, you literally could not have done worse. Especially because an earlier touchdown on that last drive at least in that case, you give the ball back to Jalen Hurts. I think back to Jim Schwartz from the from Super Bowl 52, and he's on camera telling Doug Peterson on that final Brady drive, hey, I'm, I'm going to be aggressive here. So here's, here's what's going to happen. Either we're going to end the game or we're going to give you the ball back quickly. Now, obviously, it didn't turn out that way, but at least he was thinking that way. And I, I'm honestly not sure Ganim was. Shil Kapadia, my friend, had a tweet. And, and I guess now that I thought about this, I should also clarify that Bo is also my friend. Just putting it out there. Don't want any confusion. Shield tweeted that based on offensive success rate, the Chiefs' performance in the Super Bowl was tied for the sixth best of any team in the NFL this season. And that's out of a sample of 568 offenses. In, in single games. It was the Chiefs' best game based on success rate the entire season. And that's the entire point. Shields been all over this. You're not supposed to shut down Mahomes. Just don't give up a historically bad performance. And when you have a team with legitimate Super Bowl aspirations, I'm sorry, I do not want a coordinator who has shown time and again that his defenses will against really good quarterbacks. It's kind of like a good wing defender in basketball. I am not expecting you to shut those guys down. That isn't the way the league works with the quarterbacks. They're going to get theirs just like the great scorers in basketball. But you got to make them work. And there were too many times that a Jonathan Gannon-led defense did not make the opposing star quarterback work. And the Super Bowl was only a warm-up for this offseason. I don't know what Gannon has done to convince the NFL at large of his greatness, but it's been impressive work. Even after that first season, when his defense finished 25th in DVOA, 25th, he got all of these head coaching interviews. Denver, Minnesota, Houston, they all brought him in. He was even a finalist for a couple of them. Think about that. The Eagles seriously almost lost this guy after he was a defensive coordinator for one well below average season. 
And then you read all these reports about how highly thought of he is around the league and how he killed all these coaching interviews. I mean, Jonathan Gannon must have had the greatest PowerPoint presentations ever. And if so, those presentations probably didn't include any Eagles film from the last two years. I mean, this guy turns me into an angry talk radio caller. I'm using terms like fraud and con artist to describe him, and I mean it. On the very same day that Gannon yells at the random fans in the car, after the Eagles beat the 49ers, he tells my friend Breland Moore, I now have to say that everybody's my friend, even though Breland is my friend. He tells her after the game on the field, Billy is keeping me. Good, bad, or indifferent, I'm staying here. But then, of course, a couple days later, Gannon gets a phone call from Arizona about their head coaching job. That's an illegal phone call, by the way. And he very well might be distracted heading into the Super Bowl. Which is kind of the annoying thing about the NFL. This isn't just about Gannon. The top coordinators, they work all year. They they show their, their work in the regular season. And then they have to interview for the head coaching jobs, which I get it. They all want. During the most important time of the season. And, and of course, Gannon has zero answers for Mahomes in that game. And then he pieces out the door a couple weeks later. Eventually, and and man, did the NFL try to sweep this one under the rug by announcing it like one minute before the draft started? The Eagles did get an important third round pick swap for Gannon's phone call. They take the aforementioned Sidney Brown with that pick and we'll get to him in a minute. Now, I like what I've read about Sidney Brown. I certainly like the idea of his play style. I am your average football fan. Hard hits. I enjoy that. And I hope he proves me wrong on this, but you know who I'd rather have today than Sidney Brown? Well, number one, I'd rather have a coordinator who I'm confident was fully focused on the Super Bowl. But if not that, and I know it's a crazy ask, but I would like Vic Fangio. Fangio, of course, the old grizzled football coach from Northeastern Pennsylvania, who was considered the most influential defensive coordinator in modern football. I am so far from a football X's and O's expert, but the way the league trended was that in the early 2010s, Pete Carroll and the Legion of Boom, they had a ton of success with their cover three that became the predominant NFL defense, single high safety. And then that changes over the past few years because Teams adapt. First off, a lot of teams didn't have the talent of the Legion of Boom, and these things have and flow anyway. And Fangio's too high safety system has taken the torch from Carroll to the point that Carroll now runs a lot of that too high system. This was from an article in The Athletic last year written by Ted Wynn. Quote, in an interview with ESPN prior to the 2019 season, Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan, and Matt LaFleur were all asked Which coach's defense is the most difficult to read and attack? All three highly successful play callers answered the same. Vic Fangio, who was then the head coach of the Broncos in 2019. End quote. So, Fangio is out of football last year after he's let go as the Broncos head coach. The head coaching thing didn't work out for him. But if you recall, Fangio takes a gap year last year. And in the lead up to the Super Bowl... After kind of flirting with consulting for the Eagles the entire year, he signs on for a few weeks to help the offense self-scout. 
which, by the way, that seemed to work. The Eagles scored 35 points in that game. I don't know exactly what Fangio did. Certainly didn't hurt. But Fangio, right before the Super Bowl, he signs a massive deal to be the Dolphins' defensive coordinator this year. And that's where he is right now, which, good for him. I think he deserves it. But is that what he wanted to do? Adam Schefter on 97.5 The Fanatic, he said the following earlier this summer when asked about the Gannon situation. Quote, Vic Fangio, for example, probably would not have taken the Dolphins' defensive coordinator job and would be the defensive coordinator in Philadelphia today if everything was on the up and up. And then Fangio gets asked about it point blank by the Miami media, I think at you know, one of the off-season practices, and he says, well, yeah, that, that situation's possible, but I won't confirm or deny it. So, yeah, that, that seems like what happened. I, I mean, that was a pretty revealing answer, I would say, from Fangio. So basically, Gannon leaves the Eagles one more stink bomb on the way out. Like, not just a horrible Super Bowl, but you have a great replacement lined up for me. But you know what? You can't hire him because I was secret about this and I was tampering with the Cardinals. It's just it's classic Johnny Gantz. And I think with the Super Bowl roster, you want that safer, more proven option in Fangio. That is not a shot at Sean Desai, who I hope is great. But you'd rather take the sure thing. That, that I think Sean Desai would even agree with that. But let's get to him. Because one of the cool things about Desai is that he's had some real-life experience learning under Vic Fangio. He's 25 years younger, but he worked on the Bears staff for eight years and three different head coaches in Chicago. And surviving three different coaching regimes goes to show that people generally like Sean Desai, which is a good thing. Fangio was there for some of that time, which included just an incredible Bears defense in 2018. Thankfully, Nick Foles and a couple of field goal posts stopped that group, but they had a great season in 2018. They were the best defense in the league, and Desai was there for that as well. And in reading up and, and kind of listening to Sean Desai talk, there's a lot to like about him, both, both his backstory and his football experience. The most recent thing he did in football was it seemed like, even though he wasn't the defensive coordinator in Seattle, he helped Carroll and the Seahawks, after all of those years playing that cover three scheme, to go to more of a Fangio-style defense. Seattle has a good year last year. I also like that Desai, in his one year as defensive coordinator in Chicago, he found a way to make a defense on a 6-11 and team, at least an above-average unit statistically. I can't say I was watching crunching Bears film from that season, but that seems pretty impressive to me. And then I love that he has just a really cool origin story in this business, and it happened right here in Philadelphia with Temple. Back in 2005, Desai is a graduate student at Temple, and he's also volunteering in the football office. He's like, you know, sending out recruiting letters, just kind of just trying to be part of the football program in any way. And his first in is he gets a job as an academic aide, like no football at all, just helping to get some of the kids eligible on the team. So I think that's an amazing story. Desai, who is the first Indian American coordinator in NFL history, is now the Eagles defensive coordinator at the age of 39, like two decades, not even two decades later from 
just sending out recruiting letters at Temple while you're a graduate student. He is a defensive coordinator in the NFL. And yeah, I'm sure he's going to piss me off at some point. That is what defensive coordinators do. They piss you off. Even Jim Schwartz, a good defensive coordinator, he had his frustrating tendencies. I think it will be fair to talk more about Sean Desai as the season moves along and we watch the Eagles play. And if the defense is bad, look, he's going to have to own a lot of it. I don't know what the future will hold, but I'm just saying, heading into the season, I am very happy that Sean Desai is the defensive coordinator and Jonathan Gannon is not. Okay, number two thing I am excited about for this Eagles season, and to be clear, there are a lot of things I am excited about. Loaded roster, very high expectations, all that stuff. But the other thing I'm most excited about for this Eagles season is the most obvious thing, Jalen Hurts. And I'll admit it, I was initially a pretty big Hurts skeptic. And I think that puts me in the same boat as a lot of people, by the way. Now, this isn't to say I was rooting against him, but I was skeptical of what type of ceiling Jalen Hurts had in a league where the quarterback position largely determines the health of your franchise. I mean, that might sound harsh, but you either have a franchise quarterback and thus a shot at some form of sustainability, or you don't. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. And heading into last season, we already knew this was a good Eagles roster. What we did not know is that the quarterback ceiling is also really, really high. Jalen Hurts is a dude. He proved that he is a dude last year. Now, that doesn't always last. We saw it with Carson Wentz. But it's very exciting that this player is currently the face of the franchise. Hertz did some good things in 2021, but heading into last year, I was still skeptical. Not of the running. I knew that was top-notch, particularly in those short yardage power situations. I was not skeptical about the human being and the leadership qualities. That has always been as good as it gets and is obviously super important at the quarterback position. I will still never forget watching the SEC championship game against Georgia where Hertz after getting benched for Tua Tagovailoa in the national championship game the year before, he comes back and he bails Alabama out while they're losing and after Tua gets hurt. And I'm like the farthest thing from an Alabama football fan, but I was watching that game and I found myself rooting for him really hard. He had Nick Saban, who might as well be the Grinch, choked up after the game. So even when the Eagles drafted him, you know, after that year at Oklahoma and playing under Lincoln Riley, I knew Hertz was definitely a special type of dude. But there were legitimate questions that Hertz had to answer as a passer last year. And he did, in large part, probably because of his mental makeup. Just look at his completion percentage. 52% his rookie year, 61% his second year, all the way to 67% last year. He throws more touchdowns and fewer picks. That's always good. And then you add that to the elite running and the leadership stuff, and, and you got a heck of a player. you got a guy who the players voted, I believe, the third best player in football. And I think that level of improvement as a passer should not be taken for granted because it does not happen all that much. We love to talk about players' potential in every sport, not just football. But oftentimes... 
the guy you draft is more or less the guy you end up with, no matter how hard you coach him or what you try. It's sometimes not even their fault. Sometimes they just can't get any better. But that hasn't been the case with Jalen Hurts. This Eagles roster, both last year and this year, is good enough that all you should really need from the quarterback position is a guy that you can win with. But what's exciting and what makes them, I think a lot of people's pick to make the Super Bowl out of the NFC, is that for long stretches of last year, Hurts flashed that you can win because of him. There's a difference, and that second part will become a lot more important as there's roster attrition over the next couple of years, in part because Hertz is not going to be making pennies on the dollar anymore. So right now, you have an elite roster, and at worst, a quarterback that is knocking on the door of being elite. And that's a pretty exciting combo. So let's fast forward to this training camp. And again, I'm just reading the reports. I'm not at the practices. But I think you're seeing some signs of potential improvement there as well. In past seasons, even last year, when he goes crazy, Hertz has not really gotten rave reviews from his training camp practices. And that makes sense. Hertz, or at least the Hertz of past years, the best stuff he does is what football people would call out of structure. You know, running off tackle, making a clutch third down throw where he just completely makes a free edge rusher miss. That type of stuff. And that's okay. The games are what matter. We're talking about practice here. Not a game. And it's not just with the quarterback. Here's one of my favorite examples. I went to a lot of training camp practices in the 2017 season. And in that training camp, Patrick Robinson was pretty much terrible every time I saw him. Wentz was throwing the ball to Torrey Smith over his head, Alshon Jeffrey over his head, Nelson Aguilar over his head. It was a nightmare camp for Patrick Robinson to the point where I went in the season thinking, man, the Eagles, if that guy is their second cornerback, they're going to be in a lot of trouble. And then as the season moves along, he gets bumped inside and he turns into a lights out player the rest of the way. He makes that pick six against Minnesota that jump starts, you know, that, that party in the NFC championship game. And he has a great year. So anyway, practice has not always been designed for Hertz and that's fine, but it seems like he's getting better, which is kind of interesting and maybe a little scary for the rest of the NFC East. That actually reminds me that I think Tom Brady might have been the greatest practice player I've ever seen. Now, obviously, he was a pretty good game player, too. But, like, the, the quick precision passing, that's the stuff that translates pretty well to this controlled practice environment. And I'll never forget, one of the first practices I ever covered was in 2013 for USA Today. I was there as a freelancer because Riley Cooper was speaking for the first time after the Kenny Chesney concert video surfaced. And they wanted somebody there to record that mess. And I'll never forget, it didn't matter what type of situation Brady was throwing in. He was going up against the Eagles starters, whether it was one-on-ones, seven-on-seven, 11-on-11. I'm not sure he threw an incompletion the entire practice. It, it was pretty impressive. I am a Tom Brady hater, but it was pretty good. And, and actually, the other funny thing that happened that day was Tim Tebow was the third string quarterback for the Patriots and the editor who I was freelancing for at the very end of the day was like, we need something on Tebow. And I got back to him and I was like, well, what do you want me to write? Like he didn't talk. 
he threw like four passes that were generally not noteworthy. I think one of them got intercepted. And, and clearly he was just looking for the clicks, you know, the SEO. So he's just like, we need something on Tebow. So I write something that was like three paragraphs long. Tim Tebow took some snaps. One of them got intercepted. Nobody cared. Some, some real man plays football type of stuff. And it was undoubtedly one of the worst things ever written on the internet. It's still there if you want to find it. But unlike Tebow, Hurts is starting to practice well. And, and truthfully, if the Eagles got the level of play they got from Hurts last year, if they just got that same level for 10 years, I'm feeling pretty confident they're getting one Super Bowl. He played at a, at a really high level last year. But can it get better? I, I can't wait to see that. Okay, now let's get to the things I'm worried about. And I do think it's fair to couch this part by saying that I would be pretty surprised if the Birds aren't a good team. But if they fall short a little bit or, you know, I guess when the expectation is a Super Bowl, it's pretty easy to fall short. The honest truth is that you are going to fall short. Here are some of the things that could play a factor. Number one is the schedule. Everyone knows the Eagles' schedule was cake last year, and that was a selling point during the summer when we didn't know they would be a regular season juggernaut, but we just kind of thought they'd be a pretty good team. I think enough people saw that schedule and they backed the Eagles to win the NFC East that the division odds flipped from the Cowboys to them, I believe, at some point before the season even started. So Eagles didn't exactly come out of nowhere last year, even if Hurts and Sirianni and the rest of the team in general exceeded every expectation. And as a quick aside, there is that stat that everyone always references that kind of looms over everything. You have to go all the way back to 2004 to find the last NFC East repeat champion. 2004. The curse of Terrell Owens. And that just goes to show the volatility of all four of these franchises. Never any sustained dominance from any of these teams, but never like decade-long doormat stuff either, which is kind of crazy because even Washington got a couple in there. And while I don't think the division is a juggernaut this year, it's not horrible either. Dallas would be the prime contender to keep that streak going, I guess. The Giants, well, they, they seem well-coached. Dable, I'm, I'm impressed by, but I'm not really feeling a now more expensive Danny Dimes, Danny Dollars now. Uh, that can't be all that inspiring if you're a Giants fan. And then the, the fighting Josh Harris's, they have the same issues as usual. Well, I, I guess they don't have the same exact issues as usual because they don't have the um, owner that is the scourge of the entire league. But on the field, they have the same issues. Sure, they, they have some good players. Scary Terry McLaurin, he's good. Defensive line is always good. But, like, Sam Howell is the quarterback. And Riverboat Ron also feels like a lame duck coach. So again, not, not a terrible division, but man, this feels like it should be the opportunity for the curse that started when T.O. did those sit-ups in the driveway to finally end. And my concerns about the schedule last year, but those, I, I don't want to take away anything from last year's team. They were really good, no question. Third in point differential, and that would have been higher if Hertz hadn't missed those two games at the end of the season. Third in DVOA, right? just a really good team. But heading in the last year, the schedule was projected to be easy, and it sure felt that way once the game started. 
thanks to the magic of the old internet, I looked at some of the preseason schedule stuff from last year, and whether you were looking at the previous year's record or the Vegas over-unders heading into the season, if that's how you were determining schedule strength, you could do either way. The Eagles had one of the two or three easiest schedules in the league, no matter how you looked at it. I mean, they played the AFC South, which was horrible. I mean, Dougie P, you got to win that division every single year for like the next decade. And this year, the schedule is definitely harder. If you look at the combined winning percentage of the Eagles opponents last year, which look, that's not everything. The NFL typically does not look the same from year to year. But if you look at the winning percentage, it's the hardest schedule in the league. Now, if you look at the over-unders, it's more middle of the pack. So, you know, you also have eight home games as opposed to nine, but I don't know. Average those out. It's certainly an above average difficulty of schedule, I would say. And in particular, that stretch after the bye week at Kansas City, Buffalo at home, San Fran at home, at Dallas, at Seattle, that is a freaking gauntlet. If you manage to go three and two in that stretch, I think Nick Sirianni would sign up for that today. You know, maybe he wouldn't. He'd probably be like, we're going to compete, damn it. We love competing. He'd actually probably pander some too. He'd be like, hard schedule. Those are our jaws. <laughs> I love Nick, but man, he is the pander king. And now like, look, some people are probably wondering if I'm going to make the point that the harder schedule could in fact be a good thing for the Eagles. And I do think that could be the case. You know who had one of the hardest projected schedules heading into last season? Kansas City. Now, I don't think that totally turned out to be the case. The Raiders were worse than we thought. The Broncos let Russ cook, and we saw how that went. But they got tested more than the Eagles did. They played Buffalo. They played San Fran. They played Cincinnati in the regular season, and then they had to play them in the playoffs again. And it just felt like they played more high-level competition. And then you get to the Super Bowl, and you get a coin flip game. And, well, the team that played more high-level games wins that coin flip. Is that a coincidence? I don't know. But at least for this year, the Eagles will get some high-level tests in the regular season. And there's a give and take there. I, I guess why I'm worried about the schedule is that, man, it, it was really nice to be the only team with the bye and have home field advantage throughout the rest of the playoffs. I don't think it's a coincidence that the two teams who had that situation were the ones that made the Super Bowl. And I wonder, you know, just because of that gauntlet stretch, a couple injuries here and there, could the Eagles have to play a bunch of road games in the playoffs? Like, like it would be great if they made it to the Super Bowl and they were more battle-tested. But I do think the schedule definitely makes it harder to make the Super Bowl. Okay, that's enough about the schedule. The final thing I'm worried about, and this is a more general takeaway, so we'll be fast here, is that I'm worried about the middle of the Eagles' defense. And that goes for all three levels. I think the defensive line, so we're talking about the tackles, that's probably the area I am least concerned of these three. But even so, you have some unproven players. You have, obviously, Fletcher Cox. Fletcher's pretty long in the tooth right now. He is certainly not even close to the player he once was, which was an incredible player. We talked about last pod, uh, Jordan Davis, and especially Jalen Carter. It would be nice if at least one of those guys flashed and was an above-average player this year. Because 
One of the Eagles' most important players last year, Javon Hargrave, he's not here anymore. They're going to need pass rush, and I know they can do that in a number of different ways. can bump BG or Josh Sweat inside. Obviously, with BG, we have seen that happen in a pretty important spot, and it worked before. But, you know, this was a bad run defense last year, and honestly, it didn't get much better until the Eagles signed Linval Joseph and Dominican Sue, and Jordan Davis has the talent to be a great run stopper. Jalen Carter has the talent to be just kind of a game wrecker from, from the inside. He, he certainly was considered the most talented player in this past draft. You also have Milton Williams, who's kind of a, a more underrated guy. I think he would be getting a lot more pub on a, on a team that had less talent than the Eagles. I certainly think like if he's like your fourth or fifth defensive tackle. That's a good thing. But, but that's an area of concern. Now, I, I will say the other two areas linebacker and safety they are more concerning i guess let's start with linebacker which i would argue is the most concerning and it's kind of funny because just like running back i would agree that howie roseman generally devaluing this position has worked out well i think we saw it you can just find guys who are competent and can play high level football i think back to when jordan hicks got hurt in the 2017 season i mean nigel bradham was a monster and now you have a player in Kobe Dean who pretty highly regarded pick, even though there were some medical questions about him. Certainly seems like a super smart guy, has a lot of talent. Even Flash in a couple of those games. I remember that Titans game. I thought he looked pretty good. But he sits behind TJ Edwards and Kaiser White last year. And he is completely unproven. Both of those guys are not here anymore. And I guess my, my big worry with the linebacker position is I wouldn't mind if N'Kobe Dean was the second linebacker. If there was kind of a, a mainstay, somebody who was here and we knew could play at a high level, and N'Kobe Dean was learning from that guy. He's on the field a lot, obviously, but, but he kind of has a safety blanket there. And I don't know if N'Kobe Dean has that. But basically, the, the Eagles start this training camp. They have Nicholas Morrow and Christian Ellis competing for the other linebacker position. And that doesn't go that well because I think a lot of people thought the Eagles were going to bring in one linebacker to shore this position up, a, a veteran, kind of somebody who was available. And of course, they don't bring one player in. They bring two. They bring in Zach Cunningham and Miles Jack. And those guys have obviously played well over their careers, but let's be real. They were available in August for a reason. So that position concerns me. And then safety. We uh, we talked about Reed Blankenship. He is kind of in the same spot as N'Kobe Dean, where Reed, Reed Blankenship got to play a little bit last year, and I, I liked how he played. I thought he was good. I mean, he obviously intercepts Aaron Rodgers right away. And I love what I'm reading about him. Apparently, he's balling out in training camp. That is great. But when Reed Blankenship is that safety blanket, when he is the guy who is the unquestioned starter, when he is the guy who doesn't play in the first preseason game because we can't get Reed Blankenship hurt, that worries me a little bit. I mean, going from Marcus Epps and Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, I, I get it. Those guys, everybody is replaceable outside of like the great quarterback in the NFL. But they just felt more solid at that position, especially because I don't know who's playing next to Reed Blankenship. Is it Terrell Edmonds? Is it Kayvon Wallace? 
is it Sidney Brown? I, I would be excited if it's Sidney Brown, where you have basically an irritant going with Reed Blankenship, who seems to have some range and seems to have a nose for the ball in terms of interceptions. That would be cool. And, and look, they, they just like the rest of these positions, these safeties, the, the cornerbacks that play with them, you have two all pros on the outside, and you have Avante Maddox, who's a really good slot corner. So there are other things the Eagles can do. By the way, they could probably play one of those safeties at linebacker at times, something they, they used to do with Malcolm Jenkins quite a bit. But I guess that's just a way of saying last year those problems didn't really exist. I mean, that Eagles roster last year was so loaded in a way that's almost hard to fathom. And now the Eagles feel like they just have the best roster in the league, but not like a literal Pro Bowl team. So if you made me pick what I'm worried about, it's those three positions. They just need competent play out of those guys, but they're unproven and we have to see it. Okay, that is enough for me. If you listened to the whole pod for a second time, thank you. If it was your first time and you listened to the whole pod, thank you as well. And uh, maybe we'll do another one.